questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, well, welcome home. And tonight, you really don't want to miss this interview, so I really encourage you to go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Not only will you be listening to the second part of this show, but to hundreds of other programs, hundreds of hours of truth that you will not get anywhere else. And if you want to get in touch with me, you want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion or simply have feedback, just click the contact button of our website. And also don't forget to buy pure organic sulfur. Give it a try and see the difference. Click on the store button of our website. If you're listening on YouTube, like and subscribe to our channel and like us on Facebook. John Irwin is a 78-year-old retired ex-UK Special Forces operative, about which he has written a book, namely The Sixteen. He wrote the book because he was trying to hopefully make contact with others who had also been a part of this ultra-covert and highly skilled unit. The reasons for its being so highly covert was that both British intelligence and the government of the day in the 1950s had been infiltrated to the highest level by what is known by some today as the New World Order. There is a lot of detail that go into about the 16 and what their objectives were, how they came to be, why and what they were hoping to achieve and the difficulties he and others encountered, things which he did not expect. You could say it was out of this world. And to tell us more, John Irwin is with us directly from the UK. Hello, Mr. Irwin, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. Um, thank you for the invite. I am fine, thank you. Um, where do you want to begin? You want to begin at where I was born? From the beginning, but let me say this also. Yeah. I know you're very selective in the people that you agree to be interviewed by, and I want to say, first of all, thank you to my friend Catherine Bukalu from Truth Connections. Check her her radio program out, folks. It's, it's a good one, too, and she's a friend. And she was one who uh, recommended me to you, so I appreciate that. Right from the beginning, I wanted to say that. And also, uh, John, if I might call you John. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Our audience is mostly composed of people who possess a healthy level of skepticism. We, we don't want to believe, we want to know. With a name like Veritas, we, we expect nothing but the truth. So here's the Veritas pledge, and I say this with the utmost respect. Everything you will present to us tonight is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do you agree with the Veritas pledge, John? Yes, I do. Um, I'll get to close to the truth as possible without putting myself into, um, into some kind of problems with the elite. I'll get as close as I can with it. Let's begin with your story. When and where were you born? And did you display any abilities that called the attention of your quote-unquote recruiters? Well, I was born in Newcastle, Newcastle upon Tyne. That's in the northeast of England, right on the borders of Scotland. Uh, we're known as Geordies. And the reason why we're known as Geordies is because King George I, who formed his first army up here in the northeast, he was called George. And we became George's men, and then we became Geordie's men. And that's where we got the nickname Geordie's, you see. So anyway, I was born in Newcastle in 1938. Um, that was two, two uh, years just bef before the Second World War. Um, I spent about six years at school. We had... My parents had, we lived in a two-bedroom, two-bedroomed uh, house with no electricity, just gas supply. The water was outside. Uh, we lived that, like that for about 10 years until we moved into a council house in, in the country. That was around about 1952. So things got a lot better for my parents and, and of course, for me. Um, 
I left school at 14, went to work on a farm. Um, I wanted really to be a mechanic. Um, that didn't come about. Um, I ended up in the garage, but I wasn't learning anything. So uh, in 1957, uh, the British government, which was National Service then, sent for me to uh, join the British Armed Forces as a two-year service. So I went, me, me, I didn't have to go into the army because I was just learning to trade at the time. But me, my mom told us to uh, join the army because she thought I was wasting my time trying to be a mechanic. So I went into the armed forces, wanted to be in the Royal Electrical Engineers. But that didn't come about, unfortunately. I ended up in an ordinary working regiment called the Pioneer Corps. From there, I never drank in my life. I've never drank. I never even tasted uh, spirits at all. Uh, when I first went into the training program with the British Armed Forces, the first three weeks, I used to just go down to the gym on a regular basis while everyone else went to the naffy for their drinks and what have you. It was during that period of time, maybe, um, me going down to the gym when I was first approached by um, just happened to be a Geordie sergeant in, in North Wales uh, where I was training um, and that's where it all started um, I was asked then don't forget I'm, I'm 18 years of age who's got very little schooling no education at all really have no idea what's going on in the world. I was really naive, I, you know. Um, so when I was approached and they said, would I like to do something better than what I was going to be doing? Uh, I just went along with them and said, yes, I would. Because I was only going to be working as a laborer, you see. And um, he said that at some point in the near future, after my training, I'd be approached again. I never heard any more until my training was done. There was um, some problems in the Middle East and Beirut and in, in, in Lebanon. In, North, in Lebanon, yeah. And um, there was a massive airlift out there. Uh, there was 18,000 troops left in one night. So we were all Russian aircraft and flying out there. So I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what Cyprus was or even the Middle East when it comes to that. Um, so on the way there, uh, our aircraft, one of the engines caught fire and we had to land at Malta. But just previous to that, I was told I was going to go to Beirut. I was going to be stationed at Beirut. When we landed in Malta, things changed for some reason. They said that the plans had changed for for me, that I had to go to Cyprus instead. So we, we went to Cyprus. I was at Cyprus for about a week. We had to put my own camp up. And um, after work, working in the, in the real hot weather, building our own camp, we were allowed to go down in threes to the beach, was, which the beach was called uh, Tunnel Beach in Episcopi. And... Um, Three, three of us went down to the beach. As we, uh, well, three of us, we had to take a rifle between us because of the terrorist activity. When we got down there, I decided I would just sit on the beach while the other two pals went off swimming. When I did, when they went off swimming, and I was just lying there on the beach, um, this chap came up to me. Uh, very well spoken, you know, the Queen's English. And he, he knelt down beside us and he said, um, he, he said, my name's Ken. And can you remember when you were first approached in the gym in North Wales? And to be honest with you, I forgot all about it. Um, so I, I, after a while, and you know, he explained to us exactly what happened. He said, "Yeah, I do remember now." I said, "So what's you know, what's happening? What's what's the idea?" They said, "Well, look at if you really want to go forward with this, 
um, you're not going to be training like you are now. Um, you're going to be going into more exciting areas. They were the they were the words he used. Uh, it'd be very very exciting for you. Um, so I agree with it. But at the time, I I used to stammer quite a bit. I couldn't understand why these people were, why they had chosen me for this this whatever it was at the time. I had no idea. I ended up in a, in what you call the officers' mess uh, as a head waiter, and <laughs> I thought, well, if this is if this is the special training, you know, I was really disappointed. Um, after about two weeks or three weeks in this officer's mess, they actually got rid of the stammer I had. I had to stand at the head of the table, uh, at the officer's table, and read off the menu. Apparently, well, that cured me. Uh, it's a long story, and, you know, the, 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 the bits in between that are all in the book, my book that I wrote. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, from there I went back to to my normal duties uh, in the regiment. And then one morning again, uh, they sent me off in a truck. Well, normally we don't go off single-handed in a truck. We always have to have someone with with a rifle. But this one day I was picked, and I was sitting in the truck waiting for the two, you know, to uh, go to this uh, other camp, which was in Limassol. And I sat in the truck waiting for this other chap coming, and he never came. They banged on the door of the of the truck, and they said, "Why are you still here?" I says, "Cause I'm waiting for the other party." They said, um, "No, no, you've got to go alone." I said, "Well, look, that's not in the, you know, that's not right. Uh, we shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing this." And they said, "Oh, you'll be picked up just farther along the road." So anyway, I drove off, and I was approximately about two miles from where the camp was, when I bumped into this guy who was standing on the side of the road waving at me, and I drove past him because I didn't know who, the, who, who he was. And um, when I drove past, then I realized that it was the same guy that I had met on the beach. So I stopped and reversed back. It was from then on I went with him in a jeep into the, the foot of Trudis Mountains, we left the truck. I was really upset about leaving the truck. I had no idea who these people really were. I was a bit worried in case it was you know, it could be the enemy. Um, what was making us do it? I had no idea. I just trusted these people for some reason. Um, from there on, they took me to um, uh, what looked like an old airplane hangar uh, at the foot of Trudis Mountains. When I looked at the place, it was falling to bits. It had a, an old concrete base, and that concrete base was all cracked. There was weeds growing through it, so it didn't look at, look as though it had been used for years. And I, you know, I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm in trouble here. This doesn't look right at all. So anyway, I they took us into the building, into this hangar, where I saw three men training. And um, in, in a way that I had never saw before, uh, it was unusual. It, it didn't look, it didn't look natural in the way they were training. In other words, it wasn't like people boxing or wrestling or anything. That was quite unusual. It was the not like martial doing. arts. No, it wasn't anything. It was nothing like martial arts at all. And um, I just stood there in amazement. Uh, I didn't know what to say. They came over and they introduced themselves to me. And then I had to go to the far end of this hangar, up a few steps into this little office, which was literally falling to bits, Mel. You know, the, 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 there, was a, the, there was some windows, which were all broken. And uh, I went through this, this door, and the, the door was in, in, a, in a bad way as well. So they took us into this, what looked like an office, had an old table, and the table was made up of planks of wood. You know, it, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a proper table, if you like. It was something that had been put together with planks of wood and what have you. 
So I just sat there, and I had, like I said, I could hear the these guys training, but I couldn't see them at that point. And I wanted to get up and have a look, and this camp was just saying, no, sit down. You'll, um, you'll be learning that fairly soon. And I says, all right. I says, um, you know, so I'm really impressed. I says, it's something I would really like to learn. Oh, he says, you will be learning it. So I sat there, and he he started, how can I explain it? It's very, very difficult. He started going through life, lifespan, you know. He was talking about old people dying, people who had things wrong with them, you know, cripples. And he literally started pulling life to bits, telling me how pointless life was. I couldn't understand that at all. He was really depressing me. And he, he was more or less saying, is life worth going on with? So this went on for quite some time. Then he started showing us pictures of people who'd been killed, uh, you know, even massacred. And I, I couldn't understand where this was going. It was really upsetting us at the time. Was he trying to traumatize you? I, I, I don't know. I had no idea at that particular time. So what he did was, um, and I said to him at the finish, I said, what's all this about? He says, well, it's, um, it's, it's going to be part of your training. We'll have to be able to make sure that you do not suffer from fear because it's fear that gets in the way. And this is, this is we need to see how you're going to react to what we're showing you. So uh, I said, okay. After that, after he showed me all these pictures and people being killed and what have you, he says, have a cup of tea. So I had a cup of tea. He says, do you still want to go on with this? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I really still don't know what this is all about. But I said, yeah, okay. And um, then he started, after I had a cup of tea and had a good chat again about just normal things, he started showing me pictures of, he explained that I was number 16 and I was filling in I had lost someone, and I was more or less taking his place. That was the impression I got. And um, they said that I was going to be learning some unusual things in a way that's totally different from any other kind of training. So still I had, still I had, I couldn't get my head wrapped around this. And um, he showed me a picture of a guy sitting in what looked like the similar chair to what I was sitting in, in the same building. And this guy appeared to be in flames. His body, there was blue flames, or what looked like blue flames, coming off him. And the reason why I say blue flames, it's a black and white film, but the flames just looked as though they were coloured in some way. And he explained to us that that's exactly what they were, they were blue flames. It had something to do with combustion. Um, I, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't, exp I couldn't explain it. And they, they said that um, this is a sort like, of, like spontaneous combustion. That's right. It was, con yeah, that's exactly what it was. But they said um, the reason for that was that the guy had was contaminated. <laughs> So I said, what do you mean contaminated? I mean, uh, in what way was he contaminated? Well, he said, look, you don't drink. Is that right? I said, yeah, I've never tasted it. I, I don't drink spirits at all. He said, well, we know that. He said, well, at some point he did. And he said, I said, well, why, why me? I mean, I said, I've got no education. I'm not an educated guy, so why me? He said, well, you've got everything that's needed for this particular program. And I said, well, what's that? He says, well, you're a keep fit fanatic. You don't drink. You've never drank. You've never even tasted the stuff. Is that right? I said, that's right. He says, well, that's what makes you a perfect candidate. He says, now, how many people in the British Armed Forces could we pop you know, where, 
where you know where people didn't have these same qualifications. What, why is that? Anybody who drinks would be considered, uh, let's say, damaged goods. That's right. Yeah, anyone who drank any kind of spirits would be classed <laughs> as damaged goods. Yeah, that was a good way of putting it. And I didn't really go into it any further. I I accepted what he was saying, and he said, "What's where you're going to go through the same program as what this chap." went through, that burst into flames. I said, that's great. <laughs> so it's not going to happen to you. I said, okay. Why is it not going to happen to me? I said, well, I've explained it why it's not going to happen to you because you know, you're not contaminating it in any way. I said, okay. I said, but what's this about? And they said, well, what it's about is we'll have to program you with, with uh, a no fear it's, a, it's called like a um, fear elimination program. And so when you've been through this, then we'll decide if we'll go any further with you. <laughs> and I says, oh, there's, a, a f there's another program besides this? Yeah. Yes, there is. So I said, okay, um, let's get on with it, well, whatever it is you're going to do. So <laughs> I sat there with my arms on the table, and this guy leant over, kept holding my hands for a few minutes, uh, my arms, and he said, I want you to stay in this position. Prior to that, he had a coin in his hand. Now, the reason why I put the coin in, in, with the, in, in, in the book was to give people the impression that I was being sort of hypnotized, but I wasn't. I wasn't being hypnotized at all. I know this for a fact. Uh, he used to spin this coin and he used to put his finger on the top of it. He seemed to touch the coin, but it didn't seem to stop immediately. Then he'd pick it up. And he was concentrating on me while I was when I was staring at it. And um, he, used to, he was kept on staring at me all the time. Well, not staring at us, but looking at us. Not staring in my eyes, but looking at us. And seeing how I would react uh, when he did certain things. He says, right, are you ready for this? I said, yeah, okay. So... He brought out what I thought, uh, sorry, he put, they put this thing on my head, which was like six bits of uh, like wire, just wire. It wasn't stiff wire, it was loose with little pads on, and he put it on my head. There was no other wires attached to it. It was on my head with no way, other wires connected up anywhere. So he put this thing on my head, and he brought out what looked like a pen, an ordinary pen. Upset when I said only pen, it was a bit larger and a bit thicker than a normal pen. He started to play about with it, and he was talking to us all the time. And um, I heard this high pitch whistling noise. And uh, this pitch, this high pitch whistling noise, I wanted to pick my hands up and put them on my ears, and he stopped us. Um, this high-pitched whistling noise suddenly stopped. And when it stopped, he said, right, um, do you want another cup of tea? I said, yes. I said, well, what was all that about? He said, well, that's it, it's done. I said, what's done? I haven't done anything. I've, I've never moved off this damn chair, you see. And uh, he says, uh, pinch your skin. So I... I pinched me, me skin on my arm and I, I couldn't feel anything. Um, I had scratch marks, just light scratch marks on my arms and I had a, a tooth missing, <laughs> well not missing, loose at the back. Uh, one of my big teeth at the back was loose and I had a bit of blood in my mouth and I couldn't understand how that was possible because I, I hadn't moved off that damn chair. I said, right, I says, um, why am I feeling like this? I says, and I was so confused. I was just sitting there drinking tea and having a sandwich. And I said, by the way, when am I going to start? I was so confused. I just said, when am I going to start training? I said, when am I going to start learning what I just saw these chaps doing? He says, well, you know now. I says, what do you mean I know now? You've got to be kidding. What do you mean I know? How could I possibly know? I've only been here an hour or so. 
He said, no, you haven't. And uh, I had been there actually three days, and I had no idea, none at all. This is going <laughs> to be very hard for you. So you forgot, you, you forgot at the beginning and in the end, almost as if it was the knowledge imparted upon your subconscious mind, and that's why you don't remember it? I couldn't remember anything other than sitting there talking to him and then him asking me if I want another cup of tea. And then I had these scratch marks on my arm and a couple on my face and like I said, one of my teeth were loose at the back. And I couldn't understand how how that could possibly happen to us, you know, without me knowing about it. Um, and then he said, the, we call that the machine you know, the, the combat. I says, you call it the machine? Yeah. I said, well, when am I going to learn that? He says, you know it. I says, that's not possible. I said, I haven't moved off this chair. He says, yeah, you have, yes, you have. Then he started talking about, you see, this is 60 years ago. I can't remember exactly the words he used, but it was something on the basis that, have you heard, of, you, you know about sleepwalkers, don't you? Yeah. He says, um, that's exactly what I said. Sure, yeah, I know about sleepwalkers. So well, then get up, then go down, down some stairs, and go back to bed or whatever. They can actually do things and do know they've done it. Is that is that right? I said, yeah, that's right. So well, a similar thought as things just happened to you. See, and then he started explaining. Well, he said, we'll explain to you. Your conscious brain, we switched that off. I says, how on earth? Could you do that? So, well, it's a long story. You don't want to know at this moment in time. I says, okay, I'll go along with this. Um, I'm really, I'm still confused. He says, well, we'll have to switch up the conscious brain because it gets in the way. Your, he says, Distraction. Your, yeah, your subconscious brain is like, a, he tried to describe it as a, as a recorder. This is just, you know, it records everything. And if you can switch up the conscious brain, then we can make sure that whatever the subconscious brain's picking up is what we want it to pick up, not all this other distractions, you see? I said, well, look, I still don't understand. I'll try to, but this is, like I said, this is, uh, this is really bizarre, to say the least. He says, well, you, we're, we're going to prove to you now that you know this, you, that, that, that you know the combat called the machine. I says, okay. I says, whatever it is I've got to do, you know, go ahead. So they took us down into the, into the, into the hangar where the other chaps were. I was introduced to them again. And um, on tables that had various different even a machete, they had a machete, they had uh, batons, they had a, a revolver, and um, they attacked me. <laughs> I mean, literally attacked us. First, I believe the first one was the baton, uh, and I stopped it. I took it off them, and I even disarmed the guy with the <laughs> with the revolver in such a way where I couldn't believe what I was doing. How do you do that? Physically? Physically, yeah. Oh, yeah, physically, yeah. There's no magic out there, Mel. There's no magic. It's, um, that's, why they need, that's why they need money and, and guns, but there's no magic, believe us. Um, describe how you did that. It's very, very difficult to describe in the sense that I didn't have to punch them. I didn't punch them in any way. I didn't have to. Uh, I didn't kick them even. <laughs> now, this is where the magic, this is where it really gets crazy. Because you're trying to work out how the hell could he disarm someone if he didn't grab them, didn't punch them, and he didn't kick them, you see? You're going to be wondering, well, there's got to be some kind of magic here. No, there isn't. Literally, there isn't. Um... The only way it's possible for you to, you would have to experience it, you see. Sean Stone experienced it. He came over here to see me in regards to making a film in my book. 
and was saying the contract, but he experienced it. And it's not what you think. I do actually come in full contact with a person in such a way where I can break his arms, but I don't actually grab him as such. Do you understand? I don't it's physically grab him. I don't have to. It's um, He gets trapped within my arms, the movements in my arms, and I break things with that movement in my arms. I break his neck or his chin or his arms, whatever. When I take the gun, I don't actually physically get a hold of the gun until it's out of his hands and it ends up into my hands. But until then, I don't actually grab the damn gun. I just use the the sides of me, me thumbs to manipulate the gun in such a way where it ends up into my hands. Now, our special forces, do you know our special forces? Yes, yes, do you know that? Yes, no? yes. Yeah, you do, okay. Well, I had a chap, I was invited down there by a company called Britown. It's a security company that heard about us. And I wanted to get some credibility. I had no credibility whatsoever. Um, and the only way I could get it was I had to get these people to put me through a test. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Britam heard about me. They wanted their men trained in a special way. And that heard about me. How, I don't really know. But anyway, I was invited down to the Special Forces Unit in Hereford, um, in the south of England, where I went to the gym. And I met up with their head instructor, which was a martial arts world's champion. Uh, I took two or three of my lads down who were trained with me. Uh, when I went there, we had a big audience, a mixed audience of uh, SES officers and uh, policemen to watch. So the, the, their instructor came over to me and um, first of all, I wanted to see what they did, how they disarmed people and how they arrested people. And when, when he did that, I was sort of finding faults with what they did, you see, uh, explaining that if you did this, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to get caught out. Um, it's easy to take the gun, but how do you get close enough to the gun to be able to take it, you see. Um, I said, so you always have to let the enemy believe that they're in charge when all the time you are. Um, they never did anything like this. Um, that, that It was all punching and kicking with the SES. This sounds like almost a little bit like Aikido. No, it's, it's not like Aikido at all. Again, you would have to experience it, Mel. Um, you really, it, it's nothing, there's nothing out there, anything like it. Nothing at all. Um, and also, that sounds incredible. If you move your arms, you think, well, someone must be able to move their arms in the same way. They don't. Believe us. It's, you're going to have to come over one day <laughs> and, uh, and experience it. Yes, John, I was there two weeks ago. I should have paid a visit. Yeah, you should have done. Yes, I would have loved that. Then, then you would know exactly what I was talking about, and you'd be able to tell your audience, your, your listeners, mm -hmm. exactly what it's about. Because this is where the big problem lies. You see, your 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 listeners. Um, I'm struggling here to speak English, by the way. Um, your listeners are the only thing they know is what is available. You see, like all the martial arts, of course. Point yeah, of reference. Yeah, point of reference, yeah. It's, um, it's, um, that's all they know. They don't know anything more. Uh, that's the whole object, the exercise, to be quite honest with you. You don't want the enemy to know anything. I'm very reluctant to come on your program even because that's exactly, I'm breaking all my rules here, Mel. I don't want to educate the enemy. The enemy's sitting listening, you see? The enemies all around us, they're called people. It's the people who stop the people from getting to the people at the top. It's people who do this. It's your next door neighbor. It's these are the people I get dressed up as soldiers and policemen. They're the ones that stop us from stopping the new world order. It's the people I do that. And the people I have to start waking it up. 
And again, this is why I'm very reluctant to uh, to be interviewed um, because people won't understand. They, you know, they haven't got that. How can I put it without being insulting to them? Uh, they're programmed to think a certain way. Is there a link, John, between the first Bilderberg group meeting in, in 1954 in the Netherlands and your group? You could say that. Um, it goes this. How can I put this? We, I was trained in such a way where we could infiltrate just about anything and eliminate the enemy or get whatever we were after. So there was only four of us who did that. The rest of the 16 were our intelligence. They operated throughout the Middle East to make sure that whatever country we went into, we didn't have to carry equipment with us. It was already there for us. We just have to pick it up, you see, whatever we needed. While well, our escape routes were planned in the same way. Um, we always had several escape routes. And um, so I was trained in all that. But I was trained in it, <laughs> like I said, directly, not indirectly, but directly into my subconscious brain. <laughs> Wait till you hear the rest of it. Um, the second stage of that programming that I went through after I learned the machine and the, comp the, the the strategy was all involved in that you see, all the strategies involved in it the next stage is, this is going to be a real big pill to swallow and the reason why I went through this because I had to understand the enemy I had to understand what the enemy were really after. Now, I'm going to have to be very careful here. You believe that the elite are, and the new world order are after controlling the world as a one world government. That is correct. But that's not the main thing. That's not what they're really after. That's just part of their program. They're after something far more important than just controlling the world. How far can I go with this? You can go as far as you'd like, but when I think of your story and the fact that the people who recruited you and trained you, you know, we hear all the time that the military in the United States and perhaps in UK, Israel and so on may have technology that's 50 years ahead, if not even more. And one would assume that these people who train special, you know, ops or super soldiers, just fill in the blanks, would be part of the New World Order. But in your case, yes, the people who trained you are against this so-called New World Order. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's why, that's why I was recruited in the way I was recruited. Um, you see, I was in a working regiment. And uh, that working regiment gets sent off to other regiments to do work, you see. So th th that, that was ideal because then they could send me off. As long as I went off to wherever, um, the, the company I was with didn't care as long as I came back on the day that I was supposed to come back, you see. So they didn't have any actual record. They had a record where I went, but they had no idea what I was going to do. And for some reason, they had it rigged in such a way where the company I was supposed to go to, I had no idea I was supposed to be going. So I, I used to just disappear um, into the into the base of Tudor's Mountains there where I was being trained. Um, did they so know that, where you were going? Say that again? Did they, did they know? And this is possible? No, no, no. no they yeah. didn't. You see, well, let's put it this way. There had to be an inside man in my regiment. Right. There had to be a guy who was who was in charge who could arrange that. There was no way there was no way they could do that without someone having that kind of authority. So someone someone, some colonel or even higher rank than that, would have to arrange this in such a way where nobody would suspect anything. You see? A mediator. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, how it was actually done, I don't know. I know that by certain things that I wanted, 
say, for instance, I had a pal who was called Billy Strickland. He was just one of the ordinary guys. He didn't train with us. He, he had no idea neither I was being trained. But he was talking about, he said, I wish I could get out of this um, this work I'm doing. He said, I would like to be the batman to this officer called Lieutenant Stevenson. I said, well, I'll have a word with him. Oh, he says, don't do that. You can't do that. So anyway, I did. I had a word with this Lieutenant Stevenson. And I said, look, I've got a friend of mine who wants to be a batman. Uh, he just looked at us and walked away. Next day, Billy Strickland was his Batman. <laughs> Nothing was said, just he was his Batman straight away. He got the job. So I take it that by that, by that, uh, yeah, that whatever took place there, uh, I had some influence for, for some reason. And he was obviously one of the people that was working with me. Because uh, it's a long story, but one of my first was called like um, my first kill, if you like, where I was trained to go up through the mountains and I had, to, uh, I had to find out how I'd react under, under real conditions, you know, actually killing someone. When or where was that first kill? That first kill was in the foot in the in Trudis Mountains. Uh, the the local terrorists, that's the Iroka terrorists, were hiding up there, and we got a report in saying that there was a few of them in this in a cave up there, with that had am, am, ammunition and guns up there apparently. So we went up there after them, the four of us, uh, and on that when we went when we got to the top of these mountains, and uh, we actually when we did actually find him. Prior to that, I went, we were searching these caves, these small caves, and I went into one of these caves, and uh, the water off the snow that's on Trudis Mountains was coming through the roof. It was like a shower. And um, some of the roof had fallen in, and it's sort of a bit of an embankment of loose gravel and what have you. And on the top of that was a huge dog, white dog, mountain dog. And it was growling at me, I walked at the bottom of this 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 heap uh, of uh, loose loose shale to have a look at the other end of the cave because there was an opening looking into another cave, and I'd actually seen the terrorists in there, but we couldn't get to we couldn't get through to them. So as I was coming back through the cave on my own, this dog was slipping on the on the shale, and it came it came down. Um, and it, and it, it attacked us, but I, I, I killed the dog. Um, like I said, I, I, it was quite easy to do for us. I killed this dog immediately, uh, killed it straight away. And as I was leaving, I could hear this strange noise come from the top of this shield, you know, the top of this cave. And I said, um, when I stepped outside, I could still hear this noise, this, this winding noise. And I said, look, I've got to go back in. There's something in there. And they, and they said, why? I said, look, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but I have to find out. So I climbed up this, this shell and looked over the top, and there was two puppies there. <laughs> so I realized why oh, the, the this dog, the, the mom was protecting its puppies, you see, and I killed it. So the one I won. Um, and as a soldier, you the, cannot take the puppies, but did you? Yeah, I did. Well, I've, I've sent you a photograph of me with the two puppies. Um, yeah, so anyway, we we went to the this other cave where we killed these Greeks. And um, it's, like I said, the, the, the full story of how we did that and, and, the, and the type of weapons we used as well. We do have weapons, a thing called sash. Um, it's, it's sort of a belt uh, made of fiber. And it's literally deadly. Um, that's described in the book as well. So, By the way, about the book, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I saw on Amazon different books, different names. I, I don't want, yeah, those books. Uh, I want to make sure I, people go directly to you to buy the book. That's right, because the book I've got, it's got everything in it. Um, the book has pictures. It's as hardback. It's the best quality. That's why it's pretty expensive, uh, but it's a very good quality. And 
it's a long story, Mel. Um, when the for the, when the book was first printed, about let's see, it's ten years ago now. It, it com- there was two companies involved. The first one, I had to get a solicitor to get the rights to the book back. When I got the rights to the book back, uh, another company called Blake Publishing, they took it and they said they couldn't sell it because they needed proof that what I was telling them was true. So they gave me the rights to the book back. So I never made any money at all. Seven years later, Mel, for whatever reason, the same company got in touch with my agent, which I didn't think I had anymore. And he rang me up saying that John Blair Publishing wanted to take the book on again. I said, why? I said, have you heard about the film like? No, no, we haven't heard about the film. We didn't know there was going to be a film made of it. So anyway, they took the book on again, which is on Amazon. Um, I had no say in what went into the book. I had no say in the cover of the book. It's been on the market for three years by the same company. Uh, no publicity, no advertising whatsoever. I've had three, four royalty statements and never made a penny. Not one penny. That's why I want to make sure, John, that people buy it directly from you one, as a source. Yeah. That's right. That's right, Mel. But let's let's get back. Sure. Let's get back. Where am I now? Yeah, the second stage of my training. Okay, now, this is really bizarre, Mel. This, I think your, I believe that your listeners are going to find this very very hard to take on board uh, because it go, it'll go against all our beliefs. Uh, uh, it's I, I don't know exactly how to describe it. Again, I went through a similar process where I sat at the table, put my arms on the table again, and this is <laughs> this is what happened now. The same procedure. Put this thing on my head, got this pen out, the high-pitched whistling started. But just prior to that, they told me roughly what was going to happen. And I said, uh, and they said, well, I have to ask you this because I want to know if you still want to go through with it. There was no real danger, apparently, because you know, the, as long as I, as long as I wasn't contaminated in any way, this was more or less guaranteed. I said, okay, let's let's go on with it. So, <laughs> partly what happens, they call it uh, death con, and what what takes place is. Um, I hear this high-pitched whistling noise again. I don't know anything until I until I wake up, if you want to call it waking up, because I don't feel as though I've been asleep or anything. I feel as though nothing has actually taken place. So it's not as though I've been, I feel as though I've been, I'm tired or anything like that. It's nothing like that at all. <laughs> what happens apparently is this. The switch off your conscious brain and your subconscious brain. And the reason why they do that is because the pineal gland produces chemicals when the brain is activated in any way. In other words, it's all your emotions like love, hatred and everything is created by these chemicals that are produced by the pineal gland when the eyes see whatever it is I'm looking at, like, you know, like if I see something that scares me, it will produce the right chemicals to introduce fear as a form of protection. Right. Uh, So what they do is they switch up your conscious brain and your subconscious brain so they don't get involved. And what happens is this. Now, you've heard of people having a near-death experience, right? Sure, sure. And what happens... They feel as though they're leaving the body. They feel as though the soul is leaving the body and they're looking down. That's not actually happening. What is actually happening is the energy starts to leave the body, but it's still attached to the body. You see? Now, there's two ways to look at this. One, in a near-death experience where the 
body is actually dying, either through lack of oxygen or blood or whatever. It's actually dying. The brain is still involved here. And when that takes place, the brain starts producing all sorts of hallucinations, pictures of whatever, whatever's in there. To comfort you? That, that, yeah, you, you start, you would start to see um, angels if you want, or you'd see past life, or you'd just start seeing whatever. It could be a nightmare you could be looking at. It's a bit like when someone takes a drug like ayahuasca. Uh, in some cases, people would experience nice things. and In other cases, it would be a nightmare to them. Or DMT, so, because the, the, the brain produces DMT too. That's right. So, so the object, so when people are having a near-death experience, that's exactly what they're going through, a near-death experience. And uh, the brain is still involved here. The, 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 the subconscious brain is producing these, these pictures, these, whatever it is you're seeing, you see? So in my case, um, they call it a uh, uh, death calm because, but the switch off the conscious brain and the brain, the, the, the subconscious brain and the conscious brain, they switch it off. And what happens, <laughs> your energy starts to leave the body, but it doesn't leave the body completely. So the same thing happens when someone is dying, they're looking through the, the energy they're looking actually through the energy, looking down, like a periscope, if you like. And, and, and this, they, they can go quite a long way in, into the air. It can go like, I don't know, 40, 50 feet or even more uh, in some cases. It'll even go outside of a building and you'd be looking down on a building. But you're not, you haven't died as yet. The second you die, then the soul leaves the body. But... As long as, the, as long as you're not supposed to be dying, as long as you're not supposed to, to die that present moment, in other words, uh, I can't explain this. Um, if you're due to die, if you're an old person, you die and the memory, your subconscious brain rewinds. In other words, you see your whole life passing in front of you. It rewinds until there's nothing there. It... it, it uh, it wipes too. it out? It wipes it out completely. It wipes it out, you see. So when you return, which you will, when you return into another vessel... And you it have an be, empty hard drive. Yeah. That's why when you come back, you don't remember anything. But, because you're not meant to. But you're is it really... Are the memories really erased, or do we just can't access them from our subconscious mind? Because some no, people... We, we can't... That it's erased because you're dying slowly. The whatever it is, your as the body dies slowly. This if if you check on the Egyptians, uh, the pharaohs, and that's not the people that's there now. I'm talking about the real people that built the pyramids. Um, <laughs> we can talk that. We can talk about that later. Yes. Yeah. Well. Okay. We can. I'll give you a little instance. In the top of the pyramids, they have what you call the gold room. And it, what, what took place there, the, 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 the pharaohs would go into that room and the souls can't leave the body. The souls can't leave that room because it's called the gold room. That's what gold's for, by the way. And it's trapped in there. And they have a, a, a woman who's who's pregnant, who's is, as the baby's being uh, developed, they hit the they hit the pharaoh on the head. You'll see pictures of it somewhere, where they're actually striking his head on the on the top of his head to kill him outright straight away. And what happens is what he's looking at, that recording stays there. And as the soul leaves the body, it takes the recording with it into the newborn baby. So when it's born, it knows it's a it's a pharaoh. It knows it's king. That's why you can get a young, a, a, a child five or six years of age can walk up to the play, piano and start playing it, which would normally take years uh, to be able to do something like that. This genius uh, children. Now, please, just, just to, because it's a little bit confusing. That there are people who are born with an empty slate and they don't remember anything and that's why they have to learn how to play piano. But there are, for example, 
but there are others who are born and two, three years old, they're playing like Mozart. That's right. Now, what is the difference? What happens during death that allows one baby to being be born? killed instantly? They're being killed instantly. I see. They're either the head or the stomach is being crushed very, very quickly. Murdered or accident? Yes, even if they're being hit over the head with something. Uh, the, the memory, which is, would be very, very short, um, you, something you can't measure, well, when the head's being hit very, very quickly, that memory stays with the soul when it leaves the body. That's that's really, that's true, that. Interesting. So take, for example, a, mus a famous musician yeah. shoots himself in the head, commits suicide. That's right. That's right. When he comes back, he'll remember he, the, the skills he had, a certain amount of those skills will be still there when he came back. Interesting. That's what they did with the pharaohs. And that's what the... Um, <laughs> this is where we start getting into serious stuff here. See, I can take you right back. Because of that second program I went through, I can tell you what it's all about. I can take you back two and a half thousand, three thousand years and tell you exactly what happened. I can tell you who these people are that's running the world, exactly who they are and what their plans are. And I can't go any further than that. But I before you go there, before you go there, I just have a question. Regression hypnotherapy. Some people who go to regression hypnotherapy and allegedly they go back into past lives. Is that true or are they imagining things then? A certain amount of that will be true. They will remember something. Um, if it's there for them, to, if it's there, they'll be able to do that. In other words, if it's already in the head, in the brain, they'll be able to, to top that. But in most cases, when, like I say, when people die, if they die a normal death, especially if the death, if the death is premature, in other words, if if you're young and you weren't supposed to die, the 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 soul hangs around the body after it's dead for quite a long time. It would stay there for maybe a week or more. It would hang around the body because it, it's not supposed to leave. You see, this is why some some people, if it's been a murder, can I'm trying to find the words for it, Mel. Uh, you know, you get the some people who believe they're psychic, who can take you to a murder scene because they feel something. Right. Well, what it is, um, that energy that's floating around that body will be there for a long time if it's a young person and should never have died. It will stay there for quite a long time. And then when someone who's very sensitive comes near that, it registers. That soul registers in their head. They get this feeling that it, that takes them to where the body is. Um, that's possible. Um I experienced that. Almost like a transponder calling? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Um, it's very, very difficult to, um, to explain. Um, like I say, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an oculist. That's fine. Yeah. Um, anyway, getting back to um, how I experienced that, uh, the switch up the, the brain and the subconscious brain, you see? And uh, whatever the soul, uh, the soul and the energy picks up, it it puts that whatever it's seen, it can go into other channels. I saw it, if you like, the future and the past. But let's get the straight, Mel. There is no future in past. Now, in other words, what you're living is now, it's here and now. Time travels with you. But you can, your soul can pick up on other energies that's on other planets that are beginning a similar lifestyle to what we are. In other words, you could see planets where life is just beginning. You, you would see on other planets where life is being um, 
advanced, in other words, you know, the, the, the few year, thousand years advanced from being like from cavemen, if you like. Um, there'll be other planets that are like us who are at this stage, and there'll be other planets where they're further advanced than this. But it's not, that's not the past and the future of our time. It's the past and future of those planets. You have the beginning stages and the middle stages, if you like, or, or the end, the, the end, end of life on, on various different planets. Um, that's how it works. Um, like I say, we can't go into the past, in this past, and we can't go into the future because the future does not exist yet. Um, in other words, you know, the, the position we're in now, this is the past. This is the future that has taken place right now, all at the same time. And time travels with us, you see. So, Is time travel fact or fiction? It's fiction. It's it. The time travel as a human being cannot be done. It just cannot be done. As a soul, it can be. Do you understand? It's souls that travel, not not us as a human being. But those you people know, who say out of body experience, what is it that's escaping from their body? Is it their soul? It's it's the energy and soul will start to leave the body, and. It enables them to look down like a periscope, but they're not actually leaving the body. They feel as though they're floating because the energy is starting to leave the body, but it doesn't actually leave unless the body dies. If the body dies, then the soul and energy goes into the atmosphere, if you like, or <laughs> looking for another vessel, you see? Yeah, but I'm, t I'm talking about remote viewers. I'm talking about astral travelers, uh, out-of-body experiencers who allegedly get out of their bodies and they're able to see other planets, other dimensions, other places, other countries. It's, that can only be done. You can only see other planets, if you like, um, provide that the brain, the subconscious brain and the and the, the conscious and subconscious brain are actually switched off because they get in the way. Do you understand? You see, when they're doing it to me, the energy sees these things. Uh, whatever it sees, it transfers the, the, those pictures into me, into my subconscious brain. And what happens then is they wake me up and they said, right, oh, Jody, be prepared for this, for, for the... For, for the films. I said, what films? They said, well, close your eyes. They put the thing back on my head again, um, and I, I see what's in there. But I see it because I'm using the subconscious brain. I'm, I'm seeing it like a, like a tape recorder, like, um, do you understand, like a video recorder. Um, but I, don't, I didn't see it as it was happening. Uh, the soul was reflecting it. The energy in soul was reflecting it into my subconscious brain. So I had to wake up and I, I had to switch that on so I could see it. That's how it works. Did I make that plan? <laughs> this is this is incredible, and we have to separate both segments. And I, what I wanted to accomplish during the first part was to just basically develop the character, develop who you are so people have an idea of where you come from and what you are doing. But I want to really dive into this rabbit hole in part two. <laughs> I want to go as deep as you possibly can without putting your life and the life of your loved ones in danger with any, any kind of censorship. And I want to be able to do that uh, in part two. Okay. Can, you, can you do that? Well, yeah, I think so. Well, let's put it this way. The training I did was to recover certain objects, material, as material objects, as well as uh, documents. And I had to retrieve these from various different countries. At the time, I had no idea what I was looking for. They didn't tell us. They just said it was documents. So we went into, um, into Cairo. We were dropped off uh, at uh, Port Side, and we had to work where we were right 85 miles down by the Nile to get to, into Cairo. 
we when we got into Cairo, this was 11 o'clock at night from 4 o'clock in the morning when we were dropped off. Uh, we killed people on the way down there. And to prove that, by the way, um, I'm jumping the gun here. Uh, the Egyptians, which I've sent you photographs, of me being with their special forces about six years ago, they sent for me. Uh, I'd heard all about it, and they knew I knew about Jaraba. You see, Jalabai is at the foot of Mount Hermon. You see? And that's where their fallen angels came. Um, this is around Syria, on... Lebanon. Syria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Jalabai is at the foot of Mount Hermon. You see? Um, Isn't the United Nations... Well, let's discuss, discuss this on part two. How can people buy your book? And again, folks, I want you to buy directly from... John, because there are others selling on Amazon who they don't send any royalties yeah. or anything to John. So how can people buy the book, John? Okay, all I could do is email me. They can use my email address, which is john at ucsdefense.com. I'll repeat that, john at ucsdefense.com. And defense with a C, not an S, like in the United That's States. That's right, with a C, yeah. And... Uh, if they want to buy the book, they can buy it through PayPal, which the, the my email address is um, is for PayPal as well. That's me. That's my password for PayPal, so they can get it through PayPal. If they want to send us a check or pay into my bank, if they send me an email, I'll send them all the necessary details that they need to do, to be able to do that. Wonderful. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. So much more to discuss with John. Erwin, what an incredible story, and we just scratched the surface. Let's see where part two takes us. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. Thank you.